Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The game of stickball is part celebration, part ceremony, and part hand-to-hand combat. It's a fast-paced, aggressive, full-contact sport with few rules and even fewer protections for players. Injuries are inevitable. It has a strong connection, especially to tribes from the Southeast. It's experienced a resurgence since the 1970s, and organized clubs and tournaments have new momentum. You're not going to want to miss our discussion about how stickball is played and its historical and cultural importance. We'll hear all about it right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. An initiative by the Wisconsin Department of Transportation is making an effort to honor Native American communities by having highway signs in both English and Native languages. WXPR's Katie Thorson has more. No matter where you go in the country or state, highway signs for places are fairly uniform. Giant green signs with big block letters in white mark the location, letting you know what town or city you're in. A new sign recently installed in Mole Lake prominently reads Sakagan Chippewa Community with the tribe's seal beside it. But different from the vast majority of similar signs you find across the country, this one includes the tribe's name in their own Ojibwe Moan language. Thagai Ganin. It's a, it's a, it's a spiritual, uh, cultural light that was in the water. It was part of our, part of our teachings and our migration stories and our teachings that that came about um, a long, long time ago. Sakagan Chippewa Community Chairman Robert Van Zyl was proud to unveil the new sign in a ceremony alongside community members and officials from federal and state transportation offices. It's very positive. It's heartwarming to see these dual language signs come to life. The Sakagan Chippewa community is the fourth tribe in Wisconsin to install a dual language sign. The Wisconsin Department of Transportation launched the initiative in 2021. Wisconsin DOT Secretary Craig Thompson would like to work with all of the tribes within the state to get these signs up. It's become um, uh, a priority to bring back uh, and preserve native languages, and so this was one way that we could help and participate in that. But it's also important for people in Wisconsin, people traveling through Wisconsin, to know our history, to know when they're entering uh, these sovereign nations, and to see it in the initial language. So we think it's, it's important on all those fronts. And it is that sovereignty that Van Zyl hopes people will think of when they see that sign. Because when you have your language, your culture, and your identity, you have sovereignty. And so that's what we want to express to to people. I'm Katie Thorson reporting. Tribal, state, and federal officials are celebrating plans for the removal of four dams along the Klamath River. It's a major step toward restoring a once-thriving watershed. Christina Honested reports. It was a decades-long battle, but soon removing four dams along the Klamath River will open up hundreds of miles of wild river habitat to salmon, a fish that's sacred to nearby Native American tribes. My dream is to not only bring the salmon back, but bring back... A, a way of life. Karuk Chair Russ Atterbury was among the tribal, federal, and state leaders who gathered to celebrate the largest dam removal project in the country. Work begins next year, completion set for 2024, but Atterbury says more work will remain for decades to come. There are ways we can actually restore those creeks and streams that feed our rivers 
and, and enhance and we understand Mother Nature's way and uh, combine tribal ecological knowledge and the knowledge of observation from generation to generation uh, with modern science. That's, that's the best way to go. Removal of the dams will also return California's second largest river to a free-flowing wild river for the first time in more than a century. For National Native News, I'm Christina Onestead in California. The Red Lake Nation in Minnesota is preparing for its community wellness gathering after a two-year hiatus due to COVID-19. The gathering will kick off on January 9th at the Red Lake Nation College. The goal is for people seeking solutions and opportunities to improve their quality of life, to foster success, to overcome addictions, health issues, trauma, and grief. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean and Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Support by Ramona Farms, offering wholesome and delicious foods from our heirloom crops as our contribution to a better diet for the benefit of all people. We are honored to share our centuries-old farming and culinary traditions online at RamonaFarms.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Stickball is a physical, often brutal game in which players try to carry a small woven leather ball down a field to an opposing team's goalpost. They can't touch the ball with their hands. Instead, they use specialized handmade sticks. The game dates back many centuries among southeastern tribes. It was once a way to settle disputes and played an important role in pre-colonial tribal diplomacy. It continues on today in leagues and tournaments for players of all ages, and it's popular with fans who appreciate athletic competition in a cultural native context. Athletes from the Chickasaw, Choctaw, and Cherokee nations just wrapped up a series of exhibition games in the first-ever Southeast Woodland Stickball Summit in Atlanta, Georgia. And every summer, native teams compete in the World Series of Stickball on Choctaw Indian Reservation in Mississippi. Today, we'll talk with stickball players and enthusiasts. Our first guests are joining us from Cherokee, North Carolina. We have Michael Slee. He's from the Birdtown community. He's an Indian ball player for the Walelu Cherokee Indian ball team and the director of operations for the Museum of the Cherokee Indian. He's a citizen of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. Also joining us from Cherokee, the Paint Town community, is Miranda Long Stamper. She's a teacher, coach, and stickball player. She's Creek and also a citizen of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. Miranda, thank you for joining us as well. Thank you. Mike, let's lead off with you. This is the first time we have ever done a show about stickball and Native America calling. And for our listeners who might not be familiar with the topic, stickball, Indian ball, we're talking about the same game? Yes, we are. So um, the term goes back to as far as in my lifetime that I know to uh, Bill Reed, who was the head man for Wolftown's Indian ball team. And he always opposed the term stickball because he said that that was what kids in the street in New York played was stickball. We play Indian ball. And uh, 
So when we were, you know, formalizing the name of our team, we tried to show respect to that because Wolftown's the team here that kept the game alive for our community. For a lot of years, they were the only team that was playing, so they would split up and play themselves. Um, and so other communities, the the game began its revitalization around like 2010, and other teams started standing their teams back up, or other communities started standing their teams back up. And uh, so that was kind of our way of paying a little bit of respect to Wolftown and Bill Reed was making sure that we called it Indian ball instead of stick ball. Michael, thank you for that clarification. And please give us a brief overview of how Indian ball is played there in Cherokee. So, um, yeah, so just the basics would be we play match games usually in October at fair time, which is like this team, like one team against another team. Um, and the most simple way that people talk about it is there's two rules. Um, first of all, you have to pick the ball up above the knee in a stick before you put it in your hand. And the second rule is that you played at 12. Everything else gets worked out on the field. Um, <laughs> we have two goalposts on each side of the field. Um, you have to carry the ball through, and sometimes it's agreed upon between the drivers, which kind of serve as referees for each team, of either you can go straight through the goal to score or you can – go through the goal and around, um, which is a little bit tougher when you have to turn back around and go back past the goal post. So that's the two different ways that you score. We play to 12 points. There's no time clock, no substitutions. Um, anybody can be tackled. Uh, it, it doesn't matter if you have the ball or not. There's a lot of wrestling that happens. But um, that's the real short abbreviated version, I guess. Uh, that's a great overview. Two rules, and then pretty much everything goes from then on. And and certainly a lot of a lot of wrestling, a lot of little little battles going on between different players. So for someone who's never seen an Indian ball game before in person, what can they expect to see just being there, part of the experience? Yeah. So our community really shows up and shows out for Indian ball here. Um, we play at Unity Field. Not, I know, Sean, that you're familiar with the area, but the field's probably 100 yards long, um, and it it kind of goes up on the bank beside it, and people fill up. People park beside the fence, which is right beside the road, and it's crowded. Just trying to get, like, a good view gets really crazy when there's match games going on. I mean, there'll, there'll be literally thousands of people just surrounding the field um, with uh, – supporting the team that they support or just there to watch the fun. Um, it's for the, it, it gets really violent um, it, because like we said, there's no really rules. So anything that happens out there, you kind of just deal with it and it's, it's whatever each team's, however you're willing to play. So, I mean, you can see up to and anything in between, um, you know, just tackles to the ground to people throwing fists at each other. So it's uh it's exciting. It's fun. Um, but the main goal is to carry the ball through the goal. So all of the other stuff is just kind of a distraction from that. Is there a contemporary sport that you could, that we can think of as kind of similar in any way to stick ball for a frame of reference? I, I mean, of course, like lacrosse is the one that everybody points to, but I, I think it's lacrosse, you know, combined with a little bit of MMA would be like <laughs> the, the best comp that you could give. Lacrosse and MMA. I love that. Absolutely love that. Uh, let's move on to Miranda now. And, and Miranda, um, let's talk some women's stickball. It's every bit as rough as the men's game. How long have you been playing? 
Um, I've probably been introduced about 15 years ago. 15 years and ago. It was now, just, I'm sorry, at, go ahead. At that time, it was um, – it's a little controversial here in Cherokee because there's probably – I don't know. I don't know if it's half, but there's a lot of the elders that don't think women should be playing. They don't think the women should be touching the sticks because when men are preparing to play, the women are not allowed to touch the men, to touch their sticks or anything like that. And so whenever a woman comes onto the field with sticks, you know, they um, it's just – um, half the community supports it and half doesn't. And so whenever they do play, just as they played this year at the fair, um, they had to do – it wasn't on the schedule. It was just kind of a pop-up game, exhibition game, because it is looked down upon, even though there's history stating that women's stickball was a thing and they did play and the Europeans come over and documented how – rough it was and how they couldn't believe that women were out there playing this game like that and they were bloody and you know all of this and um so they're trying to they're trying to get it back to where they i mean because they play just exactly like the men you think it would be you know a little watered down or rules added but it's the exact same and the last time that before this year was 14 years ago and it was it was rough i mean they have ambulances on standby but then the elders are worried about infertility and, you know, the mm. women are the childbearers and stuff like that. And I think that's kind of where um, it's a gray area, but the women are trying to trying to get it back because they the women feel a connection to the game just like the men do. Miranda, are injuries common on the field? Yes. Yes. It, even in an exhibition game, I mean, the girls, they're beat down, wore down, bruised up, but... The men, I mean, they definitely suffer, I would say, the more um, kind of life-changing, um, <laughs> you know, because they, they're, they're a lot rougher. So, I mean, I've seen broken backs, broken noses, dislocated arms, broken collarbones, broken legs, feet. <laughs> Miranda, the this women, sounds, <laughs> sounds yeah. crazy. Like, I mean, the women's injuries uh, are typically stitches, you know, turned ankles. They're, they're, it's okay. not. I mean, it's just as tough and rough, but you can imagine a, a man picking you up, body slamming you, as opposed to a woman takedown. It's a little different. <laughs> okay. Miranda, I'm just imagining somebody listening to the show and, and just asking themselves, well, it, it, this just sounds so so violent. Why play? Yeah, and, and it's just one of those things, like, um, it, it's just, it's something that when you're exposed to it, it feels a part of you, and people are just drawn to it. Like, the kids around here... They say, you know, as soon as um, a child is ready, they'll let you know. They'll ask for those sticks. They'll ask to go to practice. They, you don't. Ha it's not something that's forced on anyone. Well, it sounds like it's got a, a deep, deep connection there, a cultural one as well. And how important is the game just to you there in the paint down community in your family? Yes, it's very. Like Michael stated, I mean, it's. It's big. Whenever our fair comes around, I mean, you have the fair, and then you have our Indian ball. And people look forward to that every year. And the, the fairgrounds will be dead empty, and everybody's at the, at the field, you know, ready to watch the stickball games. And even though the women's game this year wasn't on the schedule and, you know, they wouldn't let them do anything like that, it was packed too. I mean, all the way around the whole track, there was cars pulled in, chairs out, you know, way in advance. And so um, – the whole community, it's just, it really brings the community together during the fair time. That's for sure.
Miranda, they're in the snowbird community, part of the, the Eastern band, Kuala Boundary. I've seen a version of Indian Ball in which men and women play against each other. Uh, are you familiar with that game as well? Yeah, that's fish. Um, yeah, I've played. We we actually played down here at the Katua Mound, um, and it it's a fun game. It's it's historically it's a courting game, and you're only supposed to play. From what I've been told, you're only supposed to play if you are, you know, you're not married, you're not with someone. You know, it's a it's a flirtatious game, and um, the men have to use sticks. The women do not, so the women can tackle the men, and while they have the ball, you know, trying to score with their sticks, but the women. They can um, they can use sticks if they want. It's not they don't have to, and they can grab the ball with the with their hands and it's um, trying to hit the top of the pole. And there's a wooden fish drilled into the top of like a 30 foot pole, and <clears throat> two points I believe if you hit it. And then there's about two feet below it that's painted, and it's one point if you hit that. It's an exciting game. The times I've watched it, absolutely just uh, riveting there. As a spectre, I've never gone on the field, but I sure have watched a lot of games. And folks, whether you want to call it stickball, whether you want to call it Indian ball, we're talking about traditional, cultural, southeastern games here today on Native America Calling. We'll be back right after this short break. If there's one word to describe the current state of affairs, it might be divided. There's heated disagreement over everything from the war in Ukraine to immigration to sports mascots. We're looking ahead to 2023 with an eye toward mending divisions. We'll talk about strategies for keeping your cool and bridging disagreements on the next Native America Calling. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The traditional game of stickball dates back to pre-European contact and continues to thrive among contemporary southeastern tribal communities such as the Cherokee and Choctaw. Let's talk next with Dr. Scott Ketchum. He's in Norman, Oklahoma, and he's the Chickasaw Nation Endowed Chair in Native American Studies for East Central University, and he's a member of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. Scott, great to have you on the show. Thank you, Sean. Halito, Scott. Let's talk a little stickball history here. What are the origins of the game? Well, you know, it's really kind of, I think the best place to start is with the uh, sticks, uh, the kabucha. Um, the origin of the game really goes to the, the our relationship with the land um, in those areas throughout the southeast and uh, the importance of uh, those deciduous forests on um, kind of shaping our identity. And so we really don't have an exact way, you know, a story on how the game began. There's a story of, of maybe the first sticks being game, being how they were made, uh, and, and a person observing a snapping turtle 
um, snapping at um, shagbark hickory uh, being one of the primary sources of making our sticks. Uh, but really, um, you know, the, so there's really not an actual story for the game, but it, it really spread over time. Um, you know, in, in terms of written record, it really only starts appearing, you know, 500 years ago is when we start getting it in, in the written record. Uh, but the game, it really reflects that relationship we had uh, with that deciduous forest in the southeast on all the southeastern eastern tribes. Stickball was a, a way at one time to settle disputes and grievances. How did that work? Well, it, you know, it was uh, that's one of the type of games um, that's really talked about is, is settling disputes. And so, uh, you know, if there was a land dispute, they would over uh, over an area, uh, they would deliver a bundle of sticks um, to let them know. Um, a countdown to when the day would the the, the game would begin, uh, and so they kind of served notice on when this on when this would happen, and uh, the game kind of went from there, um, and then they would play the game out over a dispute, and uh, you know it would first sometimes be to the men. There were games that were played between like say Choctaw Nation and Muscogee Creek Nation, in, in uh, you know in, in early uh, colonial contact days, uh, and if the men would play to a draw, sometimes the women would finish the games. We have some written record talking about a game in the 1800s where, where such an occasion occurred. Uh, but not only was it a, um, you know, the diplomacy happened in other ways. Uh, the exhibition games was and, and continues to be a way to, you know, to be our own diplomacy to spread. And so uh, you had games that took place. Um, one game in Georgia, uh, it's, you know, talking about coming full circle and talking about the recent game that you mentioned earlier, uh, there was an exhibition game um, for colonial um, Governor George Ellis in around 1759 uh, from the Skokie Creek Nation. Uh, and it was the men and the women did an exhibition uh, for the colonial governor. And so, uh, and they ended up signing a treaty. And so it was really intricately tied uh, to who we, who we are and our identity. Um, the way we often voted in our communities, we would send our bundle of sticks with leaders. And so sticks often are representative of our, you know, not of that identity of who we are. Um, and so there were games that as this game was given to us from the creator, and it calls to all of us, as we mentioned earlier, to all of us in different ways, um, there were games that were about what we would call the peace game, and it was about keeping, um, you know, just keeping the, the social trouble out of the out of the township. And so people would rotate um, clan identity uh, clan identities into the, the teams, uh, which kind of kept a you know created new affinities and relationships by community members by having them play on different teams. Um, in, in that community. And then there were games that were played annually uh, between, say, Choctaw and Chickasaw Nation, uh, a game used to take place uh, between kind of between Louisville, Mississippi, and heading towards uh, Winston County. Uh, there was a game that would take place annually, and sometimes uh, status and power would shift through those games. Uh, and so it was a very, uh, you know, as a diplomatic tool and, and as a relationship builder, uh, it worked in many different ways. And in fact, I it was something that I think a lot of the European um, uh, settlers did not really understand how in-depth that relationship of that game was to our culture um, in terms of our socialization, our spiritual games, our ceremony games, uh, games for, pur for purification. Um, all those were, um, were games that were played and still continue to be played in different ways. Scott, has the game, was it always exclusive to Southeastern tribes in those days? I, I, you know, as far as this, this type of game, I, it definitely is pretty much exclusive to Southeastern tribes. Um, but what, what I will say is that, uh, you know, it, it's really, as we look at South, the Southeast and we know that today for the Friday Night Lights culture is very much, you know, going to football games and tailgating. 
that was very much something that was something that was really occurring with the game uh, in the past. Um, and in fact, coming out of the Civil War, uh, and some I'm, I've done some research in newspapers, and Jason Lewis um, with um, NCBI has done some of this research in the newspapers. We we show that. Uh, there were people showing up um, early at five o'clock in the morning, not just uh, the native population, but people from the outside that started coming to watch these games. Um, and so they would show up at 5 a.m. And one of the newspapers talks about how the community, they didn't expect people to be there that early. And there were already thousands of people lined up to come watch the game. And so it was it, after coming out of the, you know, the Civil War and trying to kind of blend all these communities together in the southeast, the game was something that really people all started descending upon and watching. Uh, I think it became problematic as um, the communities still try to maintain ceremonial games and um, gambling and things like that started evolving. You know, we had our own traditional forms of gambling, which may be settle, you know, settling these disputes or settling um, you know, arguments between clans. We're settling, uh, you know, annual uh, kind of power, just, you know, distributing power between um, the old kind of um, social system that they ha- that we had and political systems we had. Scott, the forced removal back in the early 1800s, did that have an impact on the game of stickball? Absolutely. It, and it really, you know, it began um, with the civilization fund in the 18, you know, 1818, 1819, that really started pushing the missionaries into the communities. Uh, for Choctaws in Mississippi, we see about by 1820, um, the missionaries are already starting to demonize the game. Um, you know, there were it, there was a ceremonial connection to the game, and so as as a lot of the colonies had death penalties for ceremonial practitioners of native religion, um, you know, that really made it hard to keep those ceremonial connections to the beginnings of games, the way games would start ceremonially, uh, and so you started having that kind of Christian element demonizing the game. So by the time you get to the removal, um, you know, it, it kind of um, – you get to Oklahoma, there's still a continuation of the games, and we're, they're still holding, you know, tournaments and still holding um, games between um, counties and things like that. But slowly rules like uh, the way we celebrated the game, uh, laws like that were being passed as we became constitutional governments. Uh, and as, as we get to the Dawes Act, it really becomes worse. Uh, you start seeing laws passed to uh, not allow timber uh, being taken off Indian land. So you're taking away the uh, resource that, that is key to playing the game. Uh, so you see that element there. You see um, not allowing games on the Sabbath uh, and then not allowing games between county members. Um, and you had marshals descending down upon games. So there was an annual game uh, as they moved to Oklahoma uh, into Indian Territory. Choctaw and Chickasaw still maintained their, their annual game here, uh, but that goes away in 1903 um, and not to be replayed again until 2003. Let's go to the phones. We have Mark listening online in Choctaw, Mississippi. Mark, thanks for calling in today. No problem. Glad to be here. Hello, Mark. Great to have you on the show. I understand you made a, a stickball documentary? Yes, yes, I did. Um, yeah, so I made a, a film called The Journey of Tiakakia Ahoyo, which is about the Mississippi uh, Choctaw stickball team from here in, in, uh, in Mississippi. Well, well, tell us more about the documentary. What, what, who all does it feature? So it is about uh, – it, it talks about the, the World Series of Stickball, which takes place here uh, on the reservation at the Pearl River Reservation, Mississippi. Um, and it it highlights that, uh, the history of the game, uh, the ancient part of it and what it means to the Choctaw people here in Mississippi. Uh, but it really follows one particular team, uh, Tiakakia, which is which means Standing Pine. It's one of the reservations here in, in the state. 
Um, now, it's one of the smallest reservations as well, so that's kind of why one of the reasons I picked uh, this team to follow um, as they're competing in the World Series uh, is, is the women's team. And uh, one of the, the main reason I picked this team to, to make this documentary about is this is where my family is from. This is my home reservation in Stanton Pine. And so uh, we filmed it last year uh, when they competed, and um, it's it's out right now. We are it's been submitted to uh, film festivals. Um, it's actually won a couple of awards. It's actually won its third award uh, last night. So um, I'm from Oklahoma, and uh, uh, I'm here in Mississippi right now, showing it to the tribe uh, this weekend. So this is the first time the tribe is seeing it uh, for the first time, and so. Okay. Uh, was just able to kind of call in and kind of share a little bit about the film and um, yeah, and Mark, talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for calling in. Congratulations on this movie. And where can our listeners go to learn more about it? So you could really, it's uh, Digital Feather Media is, is my Facebook page. It's, it's one of my production companies, Digital Feather Media. And I post updates uh, about the festivals. Um, it's not out where you can see it yet because most film festivals, uh, if it's publicly seen on YouTube or wherever, it, it kind of disqualifies the film festivals. But once it uh, it kind of goes through the festival circuit, I'll be posting it on- online, probably YouTube, which will also be under Digital Feather Media. Okay. Um, so I have an Instagram page under the same name and Facebook page. So it'll probably be on those three sites. Right on. Well, Mark, thanks again for calling in. And let's go back to, to Scott. And, and Scott, I want to ask you, what do you think is driving this, this resurgence in, in stickball interest? Uh, well, it, you know, a lot of things that really helped it, uh, you know, become come out on the open is tribal sovereignty has been, a you know, a really important factor. Uh, but, you know, the game, the game has always continued despite um, the efforts to push the game away. You know, the resiliency of many of our tribal members and uh, has really been, in, in the, you know, everyone tied to the game, whether um, working um, with the cultural centers or working with the language department, you know, everybody in the community uh, has really driven that. And so I think it's, uh, you know, something that had to kind of go underground, for, you know, so to speak, for a little bit. But uh, I think now that, you know, it's being able to play it out, out in the open again has been one of the things that's really uh, contributed to the, the resurgence in the game and the interest in the game. Mm. Interesting. Let's move on to Philadelphia, Mississippi, where we have Jeremy Bell. He's a stickball announcer and player. He's also a member of the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Halito, Scott. How are you doing? Halito, Jeremy. And I, I got to ask you here. We've had folks from the Eastern Band on the show. We've got somebody here from Oklahoma. Here you are in Choctaw. Where do the best stickball players and teams come from, Jeremy? Hey, you got to say, I'm going to give the hometown crew Chalked off Mississippi. I'm just, okay. I'll just go ahead and say, it. I know Eastern Band. I have been up there, and they've tried to get me to play. And I was like, y'all are play completely different from us. So they are the experts in their version of uh, stickball, as we are in our version of chalked off stickball. Well, tell us the difference then between the two versions. Um, Eastern Band, they use one stick and they run through the goals. With ours, we have two sticks, which we call uh, kabuchas which is made out of hickory, and uh, the ball that we use is called a tua, which is made out of deer hide. And so the object is to pick up the ball and to shoot at a pole, which is about 14 feet tall. Um, If it hits any point, I mean, any part of that pole is considered a score. 
Now, the most dangerous way of trying to get it uh, to score is to post it, which means run up there and tap the pole with that ball in there. But majority of the time, if you do that, you're going to have about 12 defenders going at you and tackling, uh, ready to tackle you like football. If I were to describe stickball with us, it's a mixture of different sports. Um, now, okay, and every bit as physical, every bit as aggressive as, as what Michael and Miranda have described there in Cherokee, North Carolina? Um, we have multiple um, emergency. Um, we have um, EMTs on the sidelines because there's always guaranteed someone getting hurt during the game. Okay. I've actually faced it myself. I actually have my nose broken in the middle of the game. But you will see broken bones, uh, teeth knocked out, um, eyes hit by the stick ball. Um, just numerous injuries will occur during the game. Wow, it's just it's just on another level there. And so, Jeremy, the Mississippi Choctaw hosts the annual World Series of Stickball. Tell us about the last tournament. Uh, the last tournament composed of forty-four teams. Uh, we had the 35 and older. We had the men's division, the women's division, Pushmataha division, and Teleokchi Ishko division. So the old, uh, the youngest group that plays is between 10 and 13 years old, and then which is the Pushmataha. Teleokchi Ishko is 14 through 17, and then as soon as you turn 18, you play either in the men's division or you play in the women's division, and then of course you have your 35 and older men's team. So. For the oldsters like me, that's the one that we usually go for because we're a little too old to be playing against 18 girls. Well, Jeremy, learning more about the game and just how physical it is, I mean, just I'm thinking of listeners saying, holy cow, why would you play this game? And I mean, do you have your players sign waivers or is there anything to, I mean, it just sounds like a lot of these injuries are really, really serious. And just I'm thinking lawsuits and things like that could come from this. We actually have to sign a roster and also has like a waiver on there stating that whatever happens on the field, um, that we will not sue or anything. And so the thing about it is, is that majority of these players are out there to represent their community and they will give their all. And so, um, to them, this is an honor to play for their community, to represent for their community, to win the championship and bring it back home to their community. So in addition to this championship, are there other prizes for top teams? Uh, it's just mostly uh, they, the championship team uh, will take home a championship drum, which is uh, given out by the Chiefs at the end of the tournament. And so it's bragging rights for a year, but usually about six months into it, um, you have everybody practicing again because they're getting ready to get ready for next year's season because each year you've always got somebody wanting to be a brand-new champion. Jeremy, what's your favorite part of the game and being part of a team or, or, or doing your announcing? During the announcing, let's see, the best part is watching the future of Choctaw stickball in good hands. Um, with me, I play in the 35 and older and also play in the 18, well, the men's division. But when you see the Tully Okchi Ishko division, the Pushmataha division, these young kids coming up, it's just amazing to see the skills that these kids are showcasing each year they may be average in the beginning when they first start but as they grow older they become faster quicker they're able to quick up uh, pick up the ball with like one scoop their shooting ability is just crazy i have seen some shoot from like 30 yards out and score and it, when i watch the games and stuff i immediately when i'm announcing i'll sit there and say talk off stick ball is in good hands i was like 
wow, I'm just amazed by these youngsters coming up. And by the time they hit the men's division, the women's division, it's crazy. I was like, it's anybody's championship that year because just watching these kids grow up, um, continuing the tradition of uh, playing the game. I know with the uh, outside, we say stickball, but when we announce it, we say kabuchatuli is how we pronounce it in, uh, for the tournaments and all. But it's really great to see that our future looks great with these kids as they come up. We're speaking with Jeremy Bell. He's in Choctaw, Mississippi, and he's telling us a little bit about how the game is played there in Mississippi. We also have guests from Cherokee, North Carolina. We've got a guest from Oklahoma, and we're learning about nuances of the game depending on different southeastern tribal communities. We'll be right back. Support by Department of Homeland Security. Brandy Bynum, Program Manager, DHS Blue Campaign, has tips to combat human trafficking. On January 11th, wear blue, the international color of human trafficking awareness. To help raise knowledge of this crime, take a photo and then post it on social media using the hashtag WearBlueDay and empower your community to access Blue Campaign's educational resources to stay informed. Learn more about preventing human trafficking at dhs.gov slash blue campaign. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're speaking with Jeremy Bell. He's a stickball announcer and player. He's a member of the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians. And Jeremy, before break, you were talking about what you really enjoy is watching the young stickball talent coming up uh, in, in the youth leagues and tournaments. And stickball, I mean, this is, uh, it sounds to me very similar in terms of the, the intensity and the commitment uh, with coaches and practices and uniforms. It almost sounds like Little League to me. Uh, is, it, is it on that level of, um, of interest and support there in the, within the Choctaw community in Mississippi? Let me just tell you this. It really is in a way because they actually had an exhibition match where they uh, had six to eight-year-olds come in just to do an exhibition match. And um, I was up there getting ready to announce a little game for them. And um, the game hasn't even started. It was 10 minutes away. And these kids couldn't wait. They had the ball down there, and they were actually going against each other playing before the actual little exhibition game come up. And we were just like, wow, these little kids were moving around, picking up the ball with their hands. They were, I mean, not with their hands, but with their sticks. And just watching them shoot from long distances, and we were like, wow, they've really been watching their mothers and fathers because that's where it starts. Uh, when mother and father play stickball on the field, their kids are watching them, and eventually they emulate them. And this game is ingrained into them to continue this tradition. So like I've always said in the past, and um, it's in our blood. This game is in our blood. Um, we come from many professions to come out there to play the game, but when we're on that field, we're playing for that community, and we play with pride. And so it is like a little league. You see um, kids moving up as they go up, and then eventually they become some of the greatest football players we have there. And um, before – I heard the phone call come in from Mr. Mark Williams about his uh, movie that he has out there, The Journey of Tia Tequila Julio. I was going to do a plug for him saying if you really want to see it, he has a movie out there in which I'm actually one of the uh, ones he interviews for and he's doing the announcement part. But, yeah, if you ever get a chance, I would recommend, I would highly recommend that you watch this video because it does show how some of these women that are on that team, how they progressed as the years have gone by. And um, 
but definitely it's almost like a little league down here and uh, all the kids love it. The parents love it. We embrace this game with all. Well, thank you for all those insights there from, from Mississippi Choctaw, Jeremy. And we have another guest from Mississippi Choctaw as well, Casey Big Pond. He's a cultural revitalization specialist for the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians. He's also a member of the tribe. Casey, appreciate you coming on the show today. Alito, how's it going? Alito, I'm doing really well, Casey. Uh, looking forward to, to chatting with you and learning more about stickball. Let's talk a little bit about the equipment and specifically the sticks. How are they made? Uh, they're made by harvesting uh, hickory, swamp hickory, preferably swamp hickory. Uh, there's other wood that can be used, but um, most makers prefer uh, hickory. Now, do the sticks in differ? I'm sorry. Go ahead, Casey. Please continue. Oh, in our in our language is oksak uh, api. That's that's hickory. That's that's what it's called. Okay, so hickory is is the preferred wood there in your community. And uh, do the sticks differ depending on where the games are, are played with different southeastern communities? Uh, yes, the sticks are a little bit different. Uh, the old style sticks are usually uh, uh, double double handle, which means that the wood is bent all the way around to form a handle. Uh, and the sticks that we use is mainly just well, single handle, which means the cup is just bent, bent around and that's it. And is there an advantage uh, as to one stick as opposed to the other? Uh, to some degree, yeah, but uh, practice also comes, to, comes into play as well. Mm. Do you have a favorite pair of sticks that, that you play with? I got a few. <laughs> about how long I got, does it take? I got, I got two sticks actually I got one for defensive sticks and one for shooter sticks so depending on where well that, that, that leads me to question I mean you describe different different roles in the game shooting and carry are there different positions uh, on a stick ball team uh, yes uh, there's your uh, you got you got runners you got shooters and then you got defensive people defense players Runners, shooters, defensive players, and uh, in a typical game there, how many players on are on each side? Uh, for our style, it's uh, 30, 30 for each team, so six players on the field at one time. That's a lot of people on the field all at the, at the same time. And is there like a team captain or anybody kind of on, on each side of the, the field kind of leading the other players? Yeah, usually most teams, they do have, like, unofficial team captains. They're out there pushing their players to compete. What about the uniforms? Uh, well, in the old days, we didn't have uniforms. It was just, you know, it was uh, body paint, face paint. That's how they distinguish uh, sides, I would say. But in in our modern game, we use uh, shirts, cotton shirts. <laughs> so everybody Which makes has it like easier to recommend. Okay, so like they're all wearing the same color, kind of a team shirt then. Yeah, yeah, uh, team colors. Okay, uh, and how long have you been been playing stickball, Casey? Uh, I've been playing since I was uh, thirteen, so a little now over twenty years. 20 years. Wow. And uh, just in that time, have you seen the game really grow a lot? Uh, yeah, there has. 
And is, is there interest in playing stickball among tribes that are not from the Southeast? Uh, yes. Uh, for for a while, some other some uh, tribes that played a uh, different style, they were hesitant to change styles because they're used to their style. But over the course of uh, you know the last decade, you know, some players have uh, adapted to our style, mm. and and some players we've ad- we've adapted to their style as well. Well, so these just diff- a lot of give and take. Yeah, it sounds like it, Casey. Now, these different styles, it's really fascinating to learn how the game is played in, in different Southeast communities. And let's go back to Miranda Longstamper. She's there in, in Cherokee, North Carolina. And, and Miranda, have you traveled to, to Mississippi and Oklahoma and some of these other Southeastern communities and, and watched stickball played there? Yes, I've actually been to down to Choctaw and out to Oklahoma and um, watched the stickball games there and participated in out in Oklahoma. And I was supposed to have played in Choctaw this past year, um, but their tournament is so long that we have a hard time getting down there, you know, for the entire time. But it's, they are something else. I mean, I, I really enjoy going down to Choctaw and watching their style. Like when you're sitting there in the bleachers and you can hear the drums from, I don't know, probably half a mile away when they start coming in, it's, it's a really cool experience. And I'm lucky to have been because I, I have played Choctaw style and I've played Cherokee style, so um, I can respect the the skill level, the technique of the Choctaw, and then you know the Cherokee were just more, I guess, the more rugby style, barbaric <laughs> style, <laughs> and so they're both just equally entertaining. I mean, it's it's like he was talking about the, even the kids. He's they're so technical, like. They can catch that ball like it's their hands and throw it and catch it like it's their hands. It's it's amazing. Do you find a, a certain type of stick that you prefer when you play, Miranda? I I prefer to play the Choctaw style myself, mm-hmm. even though I'm going to get bad things said about me, but from Cherokee. <laughs> but um, I just like the technical part of it. I mean um, – the sticks are to me lighter and the it's a quicker paced game and it they I don't know. I, I really enjoy it. I really enjoy that and it that helps too that you're not because our style, Cherokee style, I mean you can get knocked down, drugged down, pinned down at any time of the game. There's no rules. You know, so you're constantly not only trying to play the game, but you're constantly having to look around to see who's coming to get you. <laughs> you know, who's trying to hold you down, pin you down, take you out of the game, you know. Um, so I can I have just such a high level of respect for both styles. And the um Oklahoma style, it's similar to the Choctaw style from what I've seen, but um but and the each in each tribal um entity, they really take so much pride in their stick ball or Indian ball that it's it's great to see because just like Cherokee, how we have thousands of fans lined up around. That's the exact same way when you go to the um, the Choctaw Fair. They have that whole thing is filled up. The the banks filled up, and everybody's there to watch a good game. And you get it, whether it's kids, um, the adult men, the the main games. They're just it's all just great to see. It's great to see so many Indians out together, you know, cel- celebrating and watching. 
just athletes that are on another level. It's awesome. Absolutely, absolutely. And I want to ask Michael Slee, who's uh, in Cherokee also. Michael, uh, pre-game rituals, post-game rituals, uh, what kind of traditions go into a contemporary game of, of stickball? Yeah, so obviously we like don't go too in-depth on the ceremonies that we perform, but the professor from Oklahoma, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but when he was speaking earlier, he talked about some of the ceremony that's part of the game and that's one of the things that I think that I'm really proud of here um, in Cherokee is that our ancestors were able to preserve those ceremonies for us and the things that go in we began preparation for a game a month out before we're actually going to play those games and there's certain things that happen at certain times and um, songs and dances that have to be done and, and there's there's a role for the women in that to help the men prepare um, there's things that the men have to do and when you were talking about injuries earlier, um, they do happen. And it, But a lot of times, you know, it, it's small stuff, like things that we can recover from fairly easy. And it, it, if a big injury happens, a lot of times, like, we can kind of step to that player and be like, did you do something to stray from the preparation that you were supposed to do? Um, and, and a lot of times, if they're honest about it, they can say, yes, they did. And, and they know that if they had prepared the way that they were supposed to, that you're protected when you're on the field. Um but, you know, with until the Indian Religious Freedom Act in 1978, a lot of the ceremony, ceremonial part of preparation for the game was literally illegal for our ancestors to do. So that was that's one of the things that, like, I really enjoy and I love to see and I, lo I love to see, like, everybody putting that preparation in and doing the ceremony. It's because, you know, for the public, what you see is just the game that might last an hour, hour and a half um, if it's a long game. Um, but the stuff that goes into it that we've um, been able to hang on to as a tribe is what really inspires me. And, and to pass those things down to our kids as our, our kids are starting to prepare and play the game. And now our women are starting to pick it back up, too. And I hope that they're able to reconnect with what their preparation is. And, and they may already do that. I don't know. That's not for me to speak on. Um, it, and so Miranda talked about earlier with the the women and how it's like controversial. And a lot of people ask me just, you know, being a stickball player, like what I thought about the women playing this year. And ultimately I just feel like that's not for us to determine like me as a man, I have no right to speak on that. That's for our women to decide. That's for our sisters to figure out. And if it's right for them, they'll figure that out amongst themselves and it'll last. And if not, then it'll fade out. Um, but I'm old enough to remember the last time that they played before this year was like in the early 2000s. I was in high school and I remember being amazed by it. And I remember hearing those naysayers saying the women shouldn't. But um, as a matrilineal tribe, I think that it's ultimately up to us as men to give our women their power back as far as letting them have their own voice, not us trying to speak on that on their behalf. Like, I feel like that's for them to do. But, yeah, okay. so we, we began preparation. You know, I mean, so, like, practice begins in spring for fall games. But as far as, like, the ceremony and stuff that goes into it, like, we're a month out um, of things that start happening okay. in different pieces at different times. Well, Michael, thank you for, for those further insights. And uh, I want to go back to, to Scott before we wrap up the show here. We've got about another minute or so. And, and Scott, I was in Oklahoma a few years ago, and I, I had the, the privilege of going there to, to Tuscahoma, uh, Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma country. And, and you folks have a absolutely beautiful stickball stadium there in, in Tuscahoma. And that just begs the question, what do you think the future of stickball looks like, Scott? 
I, you know, uh, just like was said earlier, it's 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 bright. Um, you know, we started out having a few youth teams here in Oklahoma, and it's it's just spread, and and uh, you're seeing the same resiliency uh, in our communities coming together. And so, it, you know, that's always going to be a driving factor of having all the all the community members coming together and, and showing up and and being part of it, and uh, just seeing the the future of all the young kids. Um, you know, back in 2009, Oklahoma made the journey back to playing in the World Series of Stickball in Mississippi. Um, and, and so that's, you know, it's been a really major healing factor for all of our Choctaw communities across, uh, you know, the United States. And so it's, uh, it, the, the future is bright, and I think it's going to continue to just grow. And it's become a, a major um, piece of uh, us sharing our culture across, you know, um, with other indigenous um, communities. Uh, and so it's... Uh, I, I, I see nothing but it growing and, and, I, and continuing. Well, Scott, thank you for, for closing us out there. And we've been talking all about stickball today, the traditions behind the game. Again, you can call it stickball. You can call it Indian ball. You can refer to it by its traditional name there in a native language. But it's an interesting game. It's an inspiring game. And it's a game that continues to thrive in many, many southeastern communities. Let's take a moment to thank our guests, Dr. Scott Ketchum, Mike Slee, Miranda Longstamper, Jeremy Bell, and Casey Big Pond for a very engaging conversation on the legacy of native stickball. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producers are Andy Murphy and Sol Traverso. Marino Spencer is the engineer. Show McPollin is the digital producer. Nola Daves Moses is the distribution director. Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our National Underwriting Sales Director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our Chief Operations Officer. The President and CEO of Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Have a great weekend. Support by Department of Homeland Security. Randy Bynum, Program Manager, DHS Blue Campaign, has tips to combat human trafficking. On January 11th, wear blue the international color of human trafficking awareness to help raise knowledge of this crime. Take a photo and then post it on social media using the hashtag WearBlueDay and empower your community to access Blue Campaign's educational resources to stay informed. Learn more about preventing human trafficking at dhs.gov slash bluecampaign. This month and every month, remember, one in three Native American adults have high blood pressure. Check it at your nearest community health center. If the numbers are above 120 over 80, talk to a healthcare professional. Native community well-being is very important. You can take action by visiting heart.org slash hbpcontrol. This support provided in partnership with HHS slash OMH and HRSA under cooperative agreements CPIMP 211227 and CPIMP 211228. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.